Lord, we are so grateful that we can gather together as your people and wrap up this series this week and look at this wonderful passage which reminds us of the meaning of your grace to your people. I ask, Lord, that not only we would see this meaning, we would act upon it, that you would illumine our thoughts, Lord, as this word is brought forward, that my lips would be yours among this, your people, that you would take our wills and literally bend them to yours in our day. You would take each and every one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, because it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, I got to tell you, you know, I sat Monday morning and I read this passage and I thought to myself, what a snoozer, you know, it was just, what's there? I chose it like six to eight weeks ago and I go, ah, Lord, I have nothing on this one. But, you know, as you get further and further into it, you realize there's a lot there. But first impressions, there's not the drama that we've seen in Jacob is there in this passage, really. I mean, the drama of him deceiving Esau. The drama of the glorious vision of the latter. The drama of him being schemed and ending up with two wives instead of one. And the drama last week of his wrestling match with God. I mean, and then you read this. You go, what? But you know, I discovered something interesting this week as I looked at it. Jacob's mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith passage in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's not his vision of heaven, of the latter. And it's not his wrestling match and the perpetual limp he had thereafter that he's mentioned as having a, being a man of great faith. It's Genesis 48, where the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 11:21, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Isn't that interesting? It's this act above all the others that makes him the faithful servant of God by faith. Well, let's get caught up, shall we, real quick. Last week we left off with him wrestling. I encourage you to go back if you weren't here to listen to that passage and get familiar with it because it's a marvelous text which helps bring bearing on this, as I'll show you in a little bit. But what's happened, as you well know, and we'll get to preach through Joseph's life probably in a couple of years, quite honestly. But we're going to come back to Joseph because Joseph is no slacker. He's a, it's a great story. But it's also a lot of drama going on in Joseph's life. First is he's the favored son. It's, it's interesting how Jacob commits the same problem that Isaac did with his favoritism of Jacob, Jacob played favorites of Joseph over all 11 of his brothers. And his brothers hated him for it. I mean, they really hated him for it. And especially when he came out and said, here, look at my Technicolor dream coat. You know? And they said, that's it. He's got to go. So one guy says, well, kill him. No, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him off to some slave traders. So they did. And they took his coat as the slave traders went off to Egypt, they took the coat, slaughtered an animal, covered it in the blood, and they went back to Dad, and they said, who is Jacob, now Israel, and says, Dad, he's dead. They totally lied. 
And so years and years and years go by, and a famine in, in Canaan has forced the Jews to go down into Egypt, and who do they discover is still there? Joseph. He's second in command to Pharaoh. God has just prospered him the whole time. And you can see the delight in Jacob's blessing where he says, I didn't expect to see you, much less your sons. Bring them here, let me bless them. It's just a great story and a great end to, quite frankly, a wonderful life of redemption. And what we learn in this passage for us today, here on the west shore of Cleveland, is three great truths in this passage of, number one, everybody's need for grace. Two, the experience of God's grace that all of God's people should have. And three, we learn of living a life of, through the lens of grace that all God's people must have if they want to be fruit-bearing Christians. Okay? The need for grace, the experience of grace, and living life through the lens of grace so that we can shine His light wherever we are. So let's look at this, shall we? First, we see the need for grace in verse 15 as Jacob Starts his blessing. He starts, he's got his hands on the boys, but he's blessing Joseph first. And he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. This is the first time ever in the scriptures that God is mentioned as a shepherd. First time ever. So he's on to something here. So he says, the God who has been my shepherd. Well, if God is Jacob's shepherd, what does that make Jacob? A sheep. Now, you do understand that's an insult, right? Okay? He didn't say, God who is my cowboy, and I'm the bucking bronco. God who is my ranch hand. You know? You ever play that game in Bible studies? You know, when you were a kid, uh, if you're an animal, what would you be? And they ask me that question, I would say, well, I'm an otter. You know, because if you always, you ever go to the zoo? The otters are the absolute most entertaining to watch. They're the best. I'll bet you, you'll stand there for hours just watching them. What do they do? They play. And they don't care what the temperature is outside. It's 95 degrees. They play. It's 15 degrees. They play. They make the best of a bad situation. I'm an otter. God is my zookeeper. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, God who is my shepherd. And what Jacob is, Israel, is showing the reader and therefore showing us, like sheep, who are the most pathetic, unintelligent animals in the animal kingdom. Right? Talk to anyone who's had them. You know? They're cute, but they are dumb. They are helpless against other animals, against predators. They get lost easily, and they can't find their way back home, even though they're 100 yards away. My basset can find his way home. They can't. All right? And they get sick easily. 
And when they scream at you, it's the most pathetic cry in the world. You just want to smack them and say, shut up. All right? They're awful animals, but we need wool. They're part of God's kingdom. But what he's saying in this passage, quite frankly, is that we all have a radical need for grace because we're sheep, and like sheep, we need a rescue. We have an absolute need of God's mercy, and almost everybody believes that, right? Everybody believes You you go outside the church, everybody believes that, quite frankly, except the hardcore agnostic or atheist person. We all realize we need grace. Fewer of us, however, have actually experienced that grace. How do I know that? This is the second point. Well, because you can say that about any group of people. Right? People who have experienced subjectively the God's grace in their heart. And we know that because in verse 16, he says, the angel who has redeemed me. The angel, referring back to last week's text, in the wrestling match, refers to God. God who redeemed me. I experienced that. What did he experience last week? He's in a wrestling match. And remember that wrestling match, God is showing Jacob that all Jacob has been doing his whole life is wrestling with him. So God just says, you want to wrestle? Let's go. So he slips him a half Nelson and off he goes. And Jacob thinks, oh, this is a worthy opponent. I've got him. And God's like, just biding his time. And like I said, he didn't do a half Nelson, he didn't do a single leg, he didn't do a fireman's carry, he did a touch of the hip. And when the hip was dislocated in excruciating pain, Jacob then just realizes this is God, and he grabs him and holds on to him for a blessing. Because he realizes the match is over at that point. Okay? That is God redeeming him. That, that act and that limp reminded him of God's grace to him, not his anger. Because he recognized he had been wrestling with God his entire life. It's time to stop wrestling and time to start begging God for a blessing. Because <laughs> he recognizes right at this point that there's two aspects of experiencing God's grace. The first one is, as in the wrestling match, to realize I have nothing before God. Absolutely nothing. And secondly, as a sheep, therefore, God is not far off. God is near to me. God is with me. As a shepherd comes after me, desires to bless me, has patience with me, is committed to me, loves me, and more of a shepherd than you ever dared to dream in your life if you would open your eyes and see it. So, a lot of people recognize the need for grace, but experience those two aspects of God's grace? Fewer have, but we need to. And that's what it means to receive Christ, but you don't stop there. We have a need for the grace of God. We experience the grace of God by 
surrendering it all. But last but not least, we have a life lived through the lens or put on the glasses of God's grace is the way we see the world from this time forward. Where do we see that? Well, you see in the story from 17 to 20, Joseph saw that his father, with his right hand, was, had his right hand on Ephraim, and Manasseh, his left hand. Now, when you were blessed, the right hand is the position of power for the firstborn. And he brought Manasseh on this side, and Ephraim on this side. And Jacob blesses them like this. Right? Why? Because finally, finally, let me say it again. Finally, after 130 years, Jacob has learned that God uses the unimpressive, the smaller, the younger, the weaker things of this world to bring honor and glory to him. He recognizes this, and so he says, all right, I'm going to do a blessing. I'm going to do it God's way. Boom. And he does it this way. And Joseph gets a little incensed. He goes, oh, no, Father. I know you can't see very well, Father. And he, <laughs> Joseph, Jacob says, no, I see just fine, son. And he blesses them like this. And he doesn't hate Manasseh, by the way. This is not you know, dissing Manasseh in any way, because Manasseh becomes a great nation as well. But the younger will be greater. And what this is showing us, my friends, is this is the pattern which God has always established in his kingdom. It always has, it always is, and it always will be. We see it throughout the scripture. Abel was greater than Cain. Isaac was greater than Ishmael. Jacob greater than Esau. Sarah as an old woman greater than the young and beautiful Hagar. Leah, the unattractive one, was greater than the beauty queen Rachel. Yet we see it in God's people being called to exercise their faith in weakness. I mean, that's the whole story of Gideon in Judges. Gideon comes to the Lord and says, All right, Lord, we've got 10,000 troops. We're ready to fight for you. And he says, You only need 300. Now, it doesn't take an Army War College graduate like my father from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to realize those aren't good odds. 10,000 is a lot better to go into battle with. But that's not God's ways. These are God's people. And God gave them a very specific battle plan, and it was absolutely brilliant. And he conquered. We see it in the choosing of King David, right? In 1 Samuel, Samuel the prophet comes to Jesse because God told him to go to Jesse and you're going to choose one of Jesse's sons. You see all these young, strapping, Olympic potential young men, good looking, ready to go. And Samuel goes, well, that must be him. That must be him. God says, nope, 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 nope. Right down the line. Got another? Yeah. A little pipsqueak out in the fields. David? Yeah, David. Bring him to me. That's him. And what does David do? It's David who had the courage to take on Goliath. Amazing story. We see it, we see it throughout the New Testament, right? P- 
people you would never expect for God to use, and yet they did. Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. I mean, can you imagine? Little Zacchaeus, the tax collector who's been robbing us all. He's overcharging us. You know he's pocketing our tax money. You know, but we can't find out for the Romans because he's in the Romans' pockets. And we're in a crowd to see Jesus, and Zacchaeus is behind you, and he's four foot nothing. All right? He comes behind you. He, he says, I can't see. What? Boom. Sorry. You know? He's that type of guy. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have minded being in his way. He was that despised. So he climbs up in a tree to see Jesus. Jesus walks by and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. Uh, not him. We hate him. We're going to his house. Okay. So they go to his house. And the, ta- and, the, and the Pharisees hated it. And what happens in Zacchaeus' house? He has a transformation. He says, if I robbed anybody, I'll pay you back. And Jesus, to that action, because he's acting upon his faith, says, ah, salvation's come to this house today. To Zacchaeus, the wee little man. That's what God does. Finally, is there anybody in all of Scripture who has more foot-and-mouth disease than Peter? <laughs> really? I mean, Peter was first out of the box every time, you know? And it was really, it's really quite humorous in John's Gospel, you know, when you look at Peter. He just, just steps in it almost every time. And sadly, he's the one who denies Jesus Jesus restores him to relationship. He says, wait on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes down upon him and empowered by the Holy Spirit steps on the the temple steps and preaches the gospel on Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 people are saved. Last time I checked, he did not have an MDiv from Jerusalem Theological Seminary. He was a fisherman He was a Gorton fisherman, and God used him because that's what he does, ladies and gentlemen. Because in God's economy, he always uses the unimpressive. Because these are the people the world thinks are failures. Because the only way, this is the only world view where the hero seemed to be a failure. It's the only worldview where the leader died in disgrace. Jesus didn't die with all his adoring followers around his deathbed. All his followers scattered to the four corners as he was hung upon the cross for us. And so salvation then comes through defeat. Salvation comes through poverty. Salvation comes through rejection. Because God is our shepherd and he's the one who does the rescuing and does everything for us, his sheep. He lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death we should have died so we can have the everlasting and present abundant life that we don't deserve. How do we know that through this text? Well, verse 16 doesn't stop with just the angel. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil 
bless the boys. That word redeemed is the Hebrew word gal, G-A-A-L. In the ancient Jewish culture, if you incurred such debt that you had no possible way you would ever put it put back, the person you owed money to could put you under his slavery ownership. That was called indentured servanthood. Okay? And so you'd be a slave to this person for a negotiated amount of time, according to the judge. Most of the times it was at least seven years. But a gall was a family member who could come to that slave owner and purchase you out of slavery. That's this word. The God who paid off all my debt that I couldn't pay from all evil. Bless the boys. Because this is the God who is. And it's through that lens of redemption, he decides finally to do it God's way. He doesn't care what Joseph says. Joseph is an impressive guy. Israel says, no. We're going to do it God's way. Because it affects every aspect of your daily life. You're not just a Christian at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. You're a Christian Sunday afternoon and throughout till next Saturday. Every aspect of our lives, this gospel penetrates and comes in and it changes the way I look at others, the way I look at them racially, the way I look at them educationally, the way I look at them socioeconomically. It's the one thing I need to recognize for God's grace and I experience it and therefore... I minister it no matter where I am, no matter where I go. I'll tell you, the organization which does that very well in our day is Building Hope in the City. Rather than just going and setting up a medical clinic downtown or going and setting up another food pantry downtown, Brian Upton told me at the beginning of Building Hope in the City, what they did was they went around to all the social agencies and Christian ministries around Cleveland and said, where's God working? What's God doing? What's the need here? And here we are, 15, 18, almost 20 years later now, that Building Hope in the City has been around, and look how God's blessed it. It continues to grow, and many people in our city have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because they've bought a t-shirt at Common Threads. Or the refugees that have come into the city have had English as a second language class through the classes that they provide with the local churches downtown. If you want to be a tutor, let me know. I can fix you up. It's a beautiful ministry. But they didn't go in telling the city what they needed to do. They put the lens of the good news of the gospel on and they paid attention to what the Lord was doing and looked at the needs and sought to meet those needs. And some of the needs were already being met. They just need to be bolstered. Isn't that beautiful? God's people do. And why do they do that? Because sheep don't want to be rescued. you got to go after them. I, I, I'm sorry to say I was a hellion in Sunday school when I was a little guy. Okay? One of the reasons we stopped going to church was because of me. All right? It's true. All right? But there was a picture of Jesus smiling 
on my Sunday school class with a sheep over his shoulders as he was walking and smiling. You know, I've been around sheep. They don't want you near them. When they get lost, they run away from you. All right? And when you start to grab them, they cry that pathetic cry. Then they wet on themselves. Then you got to wrestle them down. Then you got to tie their feet. And then you got to take that big lunk of wool meat and throw it over your shoulders and bring it back. I don't know about you, but I'm not smiling. Because Bob read the text. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one who's been brought back home than a bunch of religious people who go through the motions every Sunday. Who pray the collect for purity at the beginning of every communion service. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God's people pray the liturgy because there's scripture in every word of that collect. A collect, by the way, is just a collection of prayers that we all pray together. That's all it is. That's why it's called a collect. We, we pray it because it's alive. We're not religious because we're focusing on our own personal relationship with Jesus. And we can put on the lens of the gospel and see people who have legitimate needs. And we meet them because I can only live the life I can live, you can only live the life you live, and together there's a synergetic, synergistic effect, and God is glorified through us as his people. I'll tell you, someone who did that really well was young William Borden. He graduated from the Hill School of Pottstown, Pennsylvania at 16, which wasn't uncommon back then, in the early 20th century. His family was wealthy. They were, he was heir to a mining operation there in eastern PA, which was feeding Bethlehem steel and all those steel mills in eastern PA at the time. And yet he had received Jesus as his Savior and Lord through the preaching ministry of D.L. Moody. And so, as was not uncommon, it's very common in England, but it's not uncommon even among some of the wealthy here in America at that time, he's, they said, son, why don't you take a gap year before you go to Yale and uh, just, just discover the world. So he did. And so he hopped on the steamer ship, got to see Japan, got to see Turkey, got to see India, Got to see Syria, and all he saw in his 16-year-old heart was a bunch of lost souls. So he comes back home as a 17-year-old, he says, hey, Mom, Dad, I'm going to be a missionary. They didn't rejoice, because they had plans for William. Oh, you're going to college, and you're going to be in the mines. No. I'll go to college, but I'm not going to work in the mines. So they paid. He went to Yale. After that, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary, which back then was worth going to. 
It's no longer. And he got out of there and he set his sights to go to China, to the Gansu province, which is filled with a large Muslim population. And on his way, he figured he needed to learn about Islam. So he stopped off in Cairo to learn Arabic. And while he was there at the age of 25, he died of spinal meningitis. What do you think people said? What a waste. Such talent. Such intellect. He never gotten it had he stayed here in America. Should have stayed in family business. Interesting thing about William Borden's life is every major newspaper in America reported about this tragic young man's death who was set to go serve the Lord in China. And thousands and thousands of young people read that article and they went all over the world. It sparked a missionary movement in his day. Can you imagine? Because it's through the weak and the dying, God is glorified. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. So I close, ladies and gentlemen, and I ask you, what a waste? No. God took a tragedy, and a guy who wrote in his journal, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets, and used his death to bring many to him through people who would hear his witness. Because true believers, growing in the good news of Jesus, can discern the purposes and plans of God. They can. And if you're struggling with that in any way, remember, in John's Gospel, Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. Notice what he says in that passage. Because we think, I'm supposed to go and bear fruit. No. You're supposed to abide, then you will bear fruit. I can't tell you how many Christ Church loved ones I've spoken to. They've been, they just come into the office, they talk to me, and I say, how's your Bible reading? No, I'm not reading the Bible. How's your prayer life? No, I'm not praying. When's the last time you shared your faith with anybody? I'm not, I can't share my faith. We need to learn to abide. Let's get back to basics. So we're going to talk about that in a little while. But I want to encourage you, dear friends. We all recognize we have a need for grace. Receive him as your Savior and Lord and experience that grace because we got nothing. He is near. He might be wrestling with you. And you might have already said, Lord, I'm yours. But now we put on the lens of the gospel. And we see where God is at work now. All people are made in his image, and we go serve him and bring him honor and glory. Not as religious people going through the motions, but as disciples of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and thank you for this word, which shows us how the gospel 
not only turns our lives upside down, but turns the way we look at everything upside down. It gives us an upside down view of the world's values. And it gives each and every one of us a peace that surpasses all understanding when it comes to looking at our own lives and everything that's going on in our lives. Lord, we ask, therefore, you would teach us how to see with the eyes of grace everything differently. No matter how weak we are in our faith and trust in you and how weak our physical eyes are, we pray that by your Spirit, our spiritual eyes would be growing more and more filled with insight, wisdom, and deeper and deeper in their ability to penetrate beyond the superficial. And we ask that you would just get all these things done in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, because we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Amen.